0: Harvesting solar power in space and beaming it back to Earth might sound a little far-fetched in the context of today's energy woes, but perhaps it's not as far off as you might think. There are currently several international projects to develop a solar power station in space that aims to tap the energy of the sun's rays without interference from the atmosphere or any seasonal or nighttime loss of sunlight. It seems that China might be leading the pack as well. This week researchers from Shiduyen University announced progress in developing a model power solar station in the Earth's atmosphere. So not in space, but in the Earth's atmosphere. And they've made significant progress in how energy is transmitted back to a receiver. They're not the only country pumping money into this. Uh, So to tell us more, I'm joined by Dr Malcolm Davis, a senior analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and he's been following these developments in solar, in space solar for years welcome to saturday extra malcolm
1: uh good morning
0: now malcolm you and i've spoken over the years um, about space on numerous occasions but we've never touched on this solar power stations in the final frontier can you just start by explaining how it works
1: okay well with regular solar power here on earth you have solar panels on the ground which collect sunlight uh, and of course when the sun goes down at night time they stop collecting sunlight In space, there is no nighttime. Uh, The sun is always there. So solar panels in space would collect that sunlight, convert it into microwave energy, and then beam it down to Earth uh, to what's known as rectennas, which are big collecting antennas on the ground that then feed it into the national power grid. So you have, in effect, always on solar power.
0: A lot of questions with that. I mean, how do you get the solar panels up there? um, How do you build the spaceships that they go on? How do you store the energy? And then how do you transmit it? I mean, these are all the big challenges that face this idea.
1: Yeah, look, uh, I think it's getting a lot easier. This idea of space-based solar power dates back to the 70s Mm. when it was first proposed as a follow-on to Apollo. But of course, the technology then was radically less advanced, and so the collectors in space would have been huge, uh, and uh, there was no way economically to do it. Now, you have radical advances in technology that make it much easier for smaller collectors to do the same job. Um, It's much cheaper to get them into space because reusable rockets like um, Elon Musk's uh, uh, Falcon uh, 9 and so forth are making it. Uh, a lot cheaper to get payload into space because they're reusable. They're not being thrown away every time. Um, You can also use space-based resources to build these uh, collectors. So the business case for space-based solar power is becoming much more clearer than it was back in the 70s.
0: Mm. Well, this week we read a, a press release that China's making headline with researchers at Yan University and that it's successfully building a power model station. I'd like to find out what's happening here, what the end goal is, and then we'll look to all the other countries and what they're doing.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, China, I think, recognises the potential value of this because obviously they're investing in renewables like wind and wave and solar. Uh, but they recognise the limitations of the, of those technologies here on Earth. Um, the two big energy breakthroughs for the 21st century are nuclear fusion, which we've always been told is about 20 to 30 years away, uh, but we are making serious progress on that, and space-based solar power. And so the Chinese want to be in a position uh, to be able to essentially lead in space-based solar power because they recognise that if they can achieve one of these two big breakthroughs, um, they can be in a dominant position to control international energy markets in the 21st century. So there's a geopolitical angle here, but it's really about the technology, it's about the financial benefits that they would gain from essentially being in the lead with space-based solar power
0: well they don't seem to be the only nation that's interested in this either forging ahead in this uh, sector there's a space solar power project in the US I believe they're working on high efficiency solar cells and a transmission system in the UK it's considering a 16 billion pound proposal to build a solar power station in in space. Can you take us through the state of play of each of these countries where they're at? I don't know Japan and India are also keen to get ahead here.
1: Yeah, and I think that's correct. Uh, a lot of countries are recognising the limitations of ground-based renew- renewables in terms of meeting the growing energy demand for the 21st century. So, it's not just about what's happening now, it's about what energy demands will need by 2050 or indeed by 2100. And, um, in order to defeat climate change. Um, and so space-based solar power, I think, is one of the key answers to that alongside nuclear fusion. Um, but it's a case of each individual country developing its own capability. So as you say, the US and the UK, India and Japan are all pursuing this technology. They're maybe not as quite as advanced in, in, as the Chinese in some respects, uh, but it's, it's conceptual work. It's developing the, the preliminary technologies make it possible for them in the next few years to be able to deploy a test satellite, Mm. uh, to be able to test the the concept in space and prove that it works. And if that happens, then what you would do is hand it over to the commercial sector to fund uh, and you would then effectively have a SpaceX approach whereby you have commercial corporations doing this rather than governments. Uh, And that's where it begins to take off in terms of scale, in terms of being able to do it on a large scale to make yeah, you know, make it viable to provide to power national power grids.
0: And mm. I mean, what sort of time frame is realistic here? At the beginning of this interview, we spoke about NASA looking at this back in the in the 70s, and it was considered a really big bold idea uh, back then. Is it still considered, you know, a big bold idea that's needed for pioneering these newer areas, which are a long time away, or or a shorter time away?
1: Various different people have different views on this. Um, I think that uh, technology advances more swiftly than we assume it will. Um, Certainly in the 70s, when we were looking at this, the technology was moving very slowly. But now, uh, over the course of decades, you've seen technology accelerate in terms of its development. And now you're seeing all sorts of things like new advances in semiconductors and, and microchip technology, artificial intelligence, robotics Uh, autonomous systems and indeed reusable rockets that simply weren't there in the 70s. So I do think probably we will see the first test satellites up in space beaming solar power back to Earth uh, within the next 20 to 30 years, uh, and then commercialization of this technology in the the 40 to 50 year uh, sort of timeframe. So Mm -hmm. we're talking second half of this century. But nevertheless, if you put that against the um, development of climate change and how that's accelerating, this is a really important technology to develop because ground-based renewables alone will not provide the required energy uh, for an expanding population and a modernising population globally.
0: Mm. Uh, Malcolm, one of our viewers, our listeners rather, has texted in. David from Randwick says, if it works at scale, wouldn't it add to global warming, adding so much more heat at the surface?
1: No, uh, because that's not how it works. Um, it's it's beamed down. The energy is beamed down as very low energy microwave power to the rectennas. It's not pumping so- solar energy directly into the atmosphere per se it's beamed down in a beam okay so it's very localized um and if yes if if they were beaming it just simply shifting the energy straight into the atmosphere of course it would do that But that's not how it works. So it's not going to it's not going to amplify global warming. Mm -hmm. It actually helps us beat global warming. Mm.
0: You mentioned the technologies that are advancing that are bringing the costs of it down. I imagine the cost is still rather exorbitant and out of this world. Pardon the pun. But I was interested in that orbit manufacturing sector that could be developed as a result. I mean, there are three D printers up there that are printing what is needed to manufacture and, and get this off the ground, which reduces the challenge of, of also the transport of, of getting things, these, these panels which are heavy, you know, up into space, doesn't it?
1: It certainly does. And I think it's that uh, on-orbit manufacturing technology that you're talking about that is starting to appear alongside uh, in-situ resource utilisation which basically means we're going back to the moon in this decade where the aim is to go to stay. Let's start using the lunar resources to provide the raw materials to, to feed into those 3D printers to build the solar panels. So rather than hauling everything up Earth's gravity well, um, we can put in place the initial infrastructure and then it builds it in space and assembles it in space using robots. And I think that's where we're headed with this. Mm. In the 1970s, everything was to be hauled up Uh, from Earth and it became economically unfeasible very Mm. quickly.
0: Where are Australian researchers um, in all of this? Uh, We've got some really smart solar businesses here in Australia. Are we involved in this area at all?
1: Yes, we are. There's companies here in Australia that are looking at this uh, that are very interested in pursuing uh, a solar, space-based solar power capability for Australia. Um, uh it's Paul Scully Power, uh, one of the two Australian astronauts that flew on the shuttle, is promoting this uh, and he 's you know very switched on about how this could really help Australia uh, once again ex- extend its its uh, strength in renewable energy and this is the key thing you 've got to remember this is all part of the renewable energy bracket mm. so it's it 's not something separate it's it 's actually renewable energy, but we 're just doing it from space rather than on the earth. And I think that you, that Australia will uh, probably take a lead in this because it's in our interest to do so. We have vast amounts of of land for rectenna farms that could then uh, take the feed from the solar power satellites down to to the earth and then power our um, national power grids alongside the terrestrial renewable. Um, uh, energy suppliers. So it's a combination of these systems working together.
0: So when we I spoke to you just before about the timeline, given that you know the world is looking at uh, well many with the Paris Agreement net zero by twenty fifty, would this play a part at all in that?
1: It should. Uh, this is one way to achieve it. Mm. Um, you know, unless short of having that uh, long cherished breakthrough with nuclear fusion this is one of the other ways to achieve it mm-hmm. uh, and uh, eliminate our needs uh, to use fossil fuels so that you know um, fossil fuel power stations end up on the ash heap of history where they belong. Um, and I think that uh, if we go down these high technology paths of terrestrial renewables, uh, space-based solar power, investment into cracking the secrets of nuclear fusion power, uh, then suddenly we have a, a bracket of solutions that can enable us to beat climate change in the 21st century. Mm.
0: Regulation, Malcolm, is uh, a tricky one in space, (laughs) highly unregulated. Who owns the sun rays? Who has the rights to harvest what? Where can these modules travel? I mean, these are all the questions that I would imagine um, need to be addressed.
1: No one owns the sun, Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's free to all to use. But the key issue is where do we place the the collectors? Uh, How does that affect... Space congestion. Uh, Space is already a crowded place with lots of stuff up there. The collectors themselves, whilst being small in comparison to what was considered back in the 70s, are still pretty big. So there's an issue of space traffic management and space congestion, and avoiding the issue of debris. Uh, Who controls the operation and who builds them? As I said, if we're handing it over to an Elon Musk-type corporation. Uh, then that corporation has to build it in a way that's consistent with the requirements for sustainable use of space under the Artemis Accords. And so uh, there's a whole series of regulatory questions there, which I think need to be addressed, which haven't been addressed up until recently, because we've kind of, you know, up from essentially the late 70s to the early mid 80s, uh, we kind of dismissed space based solar powers. It's just beyond us. Now it's back on the agenda, so we have to start thinking about it again.
0: You mentioned the the geopolitics of this earlier. How there, whoever really commands the um, the right, well, whoever gets there first and is able to transmit it back, um, it's a power balance, right? So, is would one country who relies solely on another for beaming back solar power from space then be vulnerable?
1: Exactly. So if you have the situation where one superpower in the 21st century controls this, um, then they can switch off the energy flows to all sorts of developing states uh, that are are utilising this power. And that then means that those developing states essentially become beholden to that energy provider. And I think there's a danger here that we have to do this as a multinational, multilateral approach Mm. uh, rather than going down the path of essentially one country dominating it. Mm. So there are concerns about China's geopolitical intentions behind this, but the Americans are looking at this as well, as are the Indians, the Japanese and so forth. So I do see that eventually this is going to become uh, a multilateral, multinational um, system rather than a national-based system because, Mm. you know, after all, what we're trying to defeat is a global threat, which is climate change, and that's a threat to all. It's not just threat to the US or China, it's a threat to all. Mm. So we do need to look at this as an international project rather than a national project.
0: Mm. Well, it's probably the first time that I can literally say, watch this space, Malcolm, because there's lots going on for a really long time. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Malcolm Davis is from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute